0: Fire starters. Typically, we think of them as arsonists, bad people who want to burn a place to the ground. But that was not the case at the recent gathering of the National Rural Assembly, which was held in May of 2018 in Durham, North Carolina. There, the fire starters were seven committed citizens who, in short and passionate speeches, sparked conversation and action around the conference theme of building civic courage. Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. More than 50 million people call rural America home, and millions more have roots there. It is a key part of the American story, yet often left out. The National Rural Assembly, coordinated by the Center for Rural Strategies in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and Knoxville, Tennessee, is a movement of people and organizations that believe rural America must be included in conversations about how we will feed, fuel, and enrich our nation going forward. The Assembly in Durham brought together 177 participants from 35 states who in a variety of ways are working to achieve healthier, more sustainable, and just rural communities while taking on the challenges and barriers that often stand in the way. In this episode, we're hearing from seven fire starters who kicked off the conference with their personal stories about the important and often courageous work they do to address issues in rural America. First up is Liz Shaw from southeastern Ohio, who started standing up for what she thought was right in high school. Most recently, this grandmother has taken up the fight to bring broadband to rural Appalachia. My
1: sisters convinced me that I was the reason Papa had to put nitroglycerin under his tongue at night for angina.
2: <laughs>
1: Liz, why didn't you leave well enough alone? You're going to kill Papa one day. Well, I didn't kill Papa. But one day I did almost get expelled from high school. You see, my high school principal called me in and said, you're in trouble. But here's what had happened. My black friends had had an assembly program lined up about civil rights. And he sent everybody to the gym for a pep rally. Well, as a school correspondent for the local newspaper, I wrote about it in my column. paper didn't print the column. No, they called the principal and told on me. He called me to the office. I'm going to expel you. He said, there was no such assembly program. I said, right there it is on your calendar. He said, all right, I'm canceling senior speakers. I was one of three senior speakers. Graduation was in three weeks. He said, you can't be trusted. You'll say something radical. You'll organize the others to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, he was right. I would (laughs) have. So I'm going to say that radical thing today that I would have said that day. Just leave everything better than you find it, even if it means standing up to bullies. Because you usually will have to stand up to bullies. Just, just do it anyway. So I stood up to a racist high school principal who bullied me and took away my moment in the sun. But you know, I started a little fire. And Tina, a white girl, and Jason, a black boy, started holding hands in the hallway. Other biracial couples came out of the closet in the following few weeks. And I would like to tell you my entire student body got behind me. I would like to tell you this because a lot of them were really mad at me, including a lot of teachers. But my daddy said, if he'd expelled you, i have gone down to his office and I'd have slip-shucked his nubbin'.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there have been a lot of fires along the way, and uh, just as many bullies. You know how that goes. My current fires: I'm trying to get broadband to Appalachian, Ohio, and West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> You see, one day, I got slaughtered, you know, slowed down. I was trying to place this online order for my first grandbaby's baby shower. And it didn't go through in time. And a special item didn't get there for the big day. And I was pissed. (laughs) Sorry, preacher, where did he go? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I went to a coffee shop downtown the next day and for days after. And I researched this broadband thing. And I found some disturbing information. And I called on some national organizations, and they said, you know, uh, FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn is holding a listening tour. She might come to your area. I sent her connectivity horror stories that would make your hair curl. (laughs) And she said yes. And I said, well, now what do i do, I feel like the dog that caught the car. (laughs) (laughs) So I quickly organized the Citizens Connectivity Committee, And in less than a month, we held the Appalachian, Ohio, West Virginia Connectivity Summit. And attending, besides community members, were representatives from four U.S. senators, two congressmen, one governor, and eight legislators from states themselves, along with local and national press. Broadband experts from around the country came and helped us for free, didn't charge us. And we got people equipped. And informed, and now, in some communities, the needle is moving for the first time in the right direction. That day included um, delegations talking to Ms. Uh, Clyburn, the commissioner, and there's some hard stories to hear. There were township trustees describing landlines just land exposed in ditches and getting cut by mowing equipment. Knocking people out of landlines for weeks at a time. There was the head of Ohio County's, uh, Harrison County's emergency services. He described a soccer coach dying on the field. There was no cell service there and no landlines working. Died in front of his team and his little girls. He said, if we could have got an ambulance there, Ms. Clobber, we might could have saved his life. Well, she heard us, and in less than a week, she went back to Washington, and she told the House Subcommittee on Communications and Tele- uh, Communications and Technology about her trip to Marietta, Ohio, and she talked about us for months later. In fact, we're in her 20-minute dissent and vote on net neutrality.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're very happy about that. She got it. But let's go back to those bullies I mentioned a while ago. You know they're right around the corner. You see, telecom giants don't like it when you get community-driven systems to solve connectivity problems. And some states have enacted barrier laws to prevent, like small businesses, uh, cooperatives, municipalities, from taking care of their own connectivity. They don't like that competition. You're in such a state here today, I'm sorry, but North Carolina is such a state. You know, those bullies are everywhere. Those telegiants, they could stop all our hard work just by lining the pockets of a particular politician. We're going to keep fighting. You know, I bet a lot of you in this room right now have your own bullies, and indeed, I bet a lot of them are giants. Whether your your, uh, cause is homelessness or the environment Or some other social injustice. And when you wake up a sleeping giant, it's scary. But isn't that the essence of civic courage? Do what's right. Leave something better than you found it. Even though you're afraid. So, I say, bring on the giants. Think of David and Goliath. Get yourself your little creek rock. Get your little sling, swing it over your head, and pop. With a target that big, how are you going to miss? And if that doesn't work out, you just slip shut their (laughs) nether.
0: That was Liz Shaw, founder of the Citizens Connectivity Committee and resident of Athens County, Ohio. Next, we hear from Magalay Lacoli, Executive Director of the Northwest Arkansas Workers' Justice Center, which works on labor issues with the immigrant community, especially poultry workers.
4: It's always a pleasure to share uh, Here. the important <laughs> work we do in rural Arkansas where the immigrant community is fairly new to this conservative wide rural area. I'm from the city of León, Guanajuato, Mexico, I grew up in a very conservative family. I'm the middle child of five. Growing up as a woman has been a challenge since the moment I was born. My family had already made me plans. For me as a woman, they had to make sure I followed the right way to become a decent woman for society. Therefore, I became a warrior. Since I was a kid, I often questioned why I was being treated differently than my brothers. Why, uh, why my dad had to hit me and not them? Why I was expected to behave in certain ways? Despite the fact I, was an old, I had an older sister, I was a very curious child. I was very different than the rest of the women in my family, hungry to learn new things and experiment with life. I wanted to feel free and the only way I knew I would find my liberation was going to be through education. When I became a teenager, I found art, and art changed my life. I used art as a way to express myself as a woman, and all the oppression I was carrying with me since my earliest memories. I began doing theater at the age of 15 years old, then eventually, at 19 years old, I took a leap of faith and moved to Mexico City to pursue my dreams of becoming an actress of theater. I began to study with Luis de Tavira. La Casa del Teatro changed my life in the way I saw my surroundings. Because of the nature and, and of their approach and techniques, I began healing my traumas and pain and pain to overcome a person that fully understood where I came from, where I was, and where I was going to. Then for me, it was clear I wanted to do theater to change the world, to move consciousness among people to reflect to reflect upon our reality. When I arrived to Arkansas back in 2004, I experienced so much racism and frustration because I didn't have a community in a very wide rural area. I was living with a man that abused me and made me feel hopeless. However, I realized that I needed to achieve a higher education to learn English, to become economically independent, which is ultimately one of the hardest barriers for an immigrant woman to overcome. Despite all the struggles and challenges, I probably became the first woman in my family to
0: achieve a college degree. When I graduated,
4: I started to work closely with the immigrant community in Arkansas. And while working in a nonprofit helping immigrants to obtain health benefits, I began to listen to the shocking stories of poultry workers, women who could no longer work due to the long life injuries that happened at work, and see how these people were seen as disposable human beings. Once workers get injured, the company finds a way to get rid of them. Many poultry workers in Arkansas can no longer work. They struggle to bring food to the table to feed their families. They have no access of benefits because of their undocumented status. For me, it was shocking to hear women that had lost their babies because they were not allowed to go to the bathroom workers that had to pee on themselves because of fear of getting disciplinary points that put them at risk of, to lose their jobs. One of our members leaders, Maria, is a poultry worker that almost lost her life because of a chemical spe- a spill that happened in Tyson in 2011. Now she has respiratory problems for life. When you ask poultry workers for their demands, they will often tell you they want to be treated like human beings, and be valued better than the chicken they process. They will say the company cares more for the product than for workers. Because of these traumas and injuries, I began using art and a strategy to organize workers and the community. Um, workers, I'm sorry, to organize workers and the community to heal and to empower their voices. Last November, for Day of the Day, our members collectively created a play based off their labor and immigration experiences. This was such a powerful event because immigrants' workers were able to bring visibility to their struggles that are often ignored by a community controlled by big corporations. Poultry is the biggest industry in Arkansas with approximately 28,000 poultry workers. With the poultry industry um, putting significant money into the community improvement efforts, many community members are uncomfortable confronting them over worker issues. I'm an apologetic immigrant woman that has learned to stand firm with my principles. A woman like myself is not always welcome in many spaces because in the South, they prioritize feelings over justice. People are often hesitant to go up against the status quo for fear of offending people. But we have to challenge that or we won't achieve change by caring about the feelings of people with privilege. For me, this job is not a job. It's a duty to humanity. We must use our privilege to give power and voice to the most vulnerable. There is a difference between charity and justice, and we want justice. Workers who process our food should be able to provide food, education, and health care to their families and themselves. No worker should be exploited and, be, and treated less than a human. Therefore, our work is crucial in wide rural areas in which big corporations are moving to these places and immigrants are exposed to exploitations with very limited labor and immigrant laws that protect them. I strongly believe we can change our reality the same way I changed mine. Nothing is aesthetic. We, have, we just have to risk and be brave. We have to be resilient, resistant, and persistent. When someone tells you you can't do it, it's because they've normalized violence and oppression. But for me, the words give me strength. Because I know when we want something, it's because we can achieve it. We are not dreaming for a better world. We are completely awake, working on building one. I don't pretend to be a saber. My work is about lifting. The voice of the most vulnerable to fight for dignity and respect, because if they win, we all win. Thank you.
0: That was Firestarter Magale Lecoli. Next up is David Tolan, the first CEO of Thrive Allen County, a nonprofit working to improve quality of life and economic conditions in Allen County, Kansas which has a population of 13,000. David started his presentation waving an empty pickle jar.
5: Who knows what this is? Can you see it? Pickle jar. that's right. You know what else it is? It's a rural healthcare financing mechanism.
2: <laughs>
5: if this looks familiar, it's because this is one of a million jars that we've all seen in the convenience stores and diners across rural America. This is how we pay for health care when one of our neighbors gets cancer or has a farm accident or is in a car wreck. We pay for health care in the richest society in the history of the world by putting nickels in a pickle jar. Or at least that's certainly how it's been for my community. Allen County, Kansas is a lot like most of the other little squares on the Kansas map or on any state's map for that matter. We're small. There's only about 13,000 of us. We've got a bunch of little towns sprinkled across the landscape. We've got civic clubs and lots of churches and diners where people sit cussing and discussing the weather, commodity prices, Obama. (laughs) And, of course, we Talk about the past. People in Ellsmore talk about how Moran shut down their school back in the 90s. Humboldt, where they're still mad about the bad football call back in 1957, (laughs) still teaches in their schools how Iola stole the county seat in 1865. (laughs) And, of course, this is just our strain of it, the petty rivalries, the little slights, the bad football calls that combined add up to reasons why not to do things. Maybe you have them too in your communities, I'm guessing. They'll say, she's trying to open a coffee shop? Doesn't she remember when Mike's boy tried that? He went bust. Or a walking trail? Nobody walks here. Or a dog park? Who in the hell builds a park for dogs? (laughs) And on and on and on it goes. When left unchecked, this coffee shop cancer sucks the life out of our rural communities. It sucks the positive energy that's naturally in communities and naturally in people. And people quit trying. That's where we were as a community about 15 years ago. But something happened. A group of folks was tired of accepting the premise that tomorrow has to be worse than today. They were tired of accepting the premise that change has to equal loss. And frankly, they were just tired of seeing fewer people at the Kiwanis Club meetings or fewer people in the church pews. And they said, enough. They started to push back against that coffee shop cancer with a different message, a message that said, hey, we're not going to make it unless we change the way we're doing business. And that business is the business of building community. And they had an audacious vision that Allen County would become the healthiest rural county in the state, and that it would not just survive, not just make it, but that it would thrive. And so, appropriately, out of these conversations, sprang a coalition designed to harness all of this energy called Thrive Allen County. And from Thrive sprang a new way of doing what we'd always done, but it's somehow forgotten in the last generation, in the last 30 years, which was making sure that the work was done by the people. It was and it is resident-led. So we started with community conversations from the county seat of Iola with 6,000 people down to the smallest town of Bassett with 22. In the little town of Ellsmore with 67 residents, and I might add 40 of them showed up at our first meeting, they said, we, we asked them, hey, what do you want to see happen here? And at first, the response was silence. It was crickets. No one had ever asked them before. But eventually, an old farmer, overalls, stood up and he said,
0: I know y'all don't
5: do this, but we really need those ditches mowed out on 4600 Road. And We thought, huh, that's a new one. Never heard that before. And we considered all of our professional and academic training, you know, everything they teach about running the nonprofit, you need to stay mission focused, keep your eye on the prize. And we promptly ignored all that and we got those ditches mode because that was their priority. And a few months later, we went back. Now they wanted a stop sign put back up. So we got the stop sign. And then we went back, and they wanted flu shots. And then we went back, and they wanted a playground. And then they wanted the community building fixed up. And then they wanted a fitness center in that community building. And they led this work, and they made it happen. It grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it was theirs. But then we needed something as a county, and that was that our critical access hospital was falling apart. We needed a new facility, and the only way to do it was with a county-wide bond we hadn't tried doing anything together as a county since 1969. You may not be surprised. You know, it's it's easy with the benefit of hindsight, uh, but it passed with 72 percent of the vote, and we were shocked. This was in 2010, the year of the rise of the Tea Party, and our county voted to tax itself with 72 percent in support. We were surprised because making progress in community work is like watching a tree grow. You can't see it day by day. Maybe you can see it year by year, but more likely it's decade by decade. You can't see it, but you know, you can feel it. Along the way across the county, we suddenly realized there were sprigs of new growth popping up everywhere. Some of that was by design. We had blown up our committees and organized work by task and volunteers flocked in. They wanted to build the trail. They only had to build the trail. They don't have to maintain it. And these people were tackling the things that had always bugged them, that were or weren't happening in their towns. So some of this was internal. It was what was inside of folks. But a lot of it was also happening because people do what they see other people doing. When taking action in your community becomes the cool thing, the people, become an unstoppable force. So today, those old codgers are still in the diner, cussing and discussing. But even their conversations have changed. Now it's, man, I'm tired of all those people on the trail waving at me when I'm trying to mow. (laughs) Or or it's, did you see all those people at the dog park? Looks dangerous to me. Somebody's going to get bit. Now, today, the voices that dominate in Allen County are the voices of action. They're voices of progress. They're voices that say, how should we do this, rather than, why do this? The negativity no longer goes unchallenged. Now, we don't have it all figured out. Far from it. We still fight. Too many of our people remain mired in poverty. Our county health ranking has a long, long way to go. And yet, yeah, we've, we've still got pickle jars. But you know what else? Now we have an FQHC, a free clinic, that we can send people to. And now, we've replenished our stock of physicians in the county by doing good recruitment. And we have a new hospital. And we are going to pass Medicaid expansion in Kansas next year. You can mark my word so we can throw away that pickle <laughs> job. Ultimately, we're succeeding because we're throwing away the labels that were imposed on us, that something is a liberal this or a conservative that, and we're focusing on what works for us and letting the residents lead that work. And we've adopted a new call to arms, as Anna mentioned. Action removes doubt. Action removes doubt, whether it's action to eliminate inequities or build a hospital or win the RWJF Culture of Health Prize or mow a ditch, or even to throw away that pickle jar. Action removes doubt. Thank you.
0: From David Tolan, we move to Joe Marshall, the founder and executive director of the Warrior Institute in Northern California. Joe is a certified CrossFit instructor, whitewater guide, farmer, and cultural connections teacher at Hoopa Valley High School.
6: Hey, um, hot um, Good morning. I was born and raised on the Valley Indian Reservation in Northern California. My tribes, the Hoopa, Natenkwe, the Yurok, Kulakwa, and the Karuk, Ara are a beautiful people from a beautiful place on this earth. My people have lived on the Trinity and Klamath River since the beginning of time in relative peace and harmony with their environment. The way of life of my people served as a good model for us all today. Colonization, genocide, displacement, forced assimilation, the gold rush, western expansion have all had a devastating impact on our way of life and left a legacy of destruction. But I'm so fortunate for the ones that before me who have fought hard to pass down the knowledge that remains. I'm thankful to be here today to share my story with you, my purpose is to carry the prayers of my elders and ancestors to pick up the fire and carry it forward. Back home, in this nation, and around the world, I see the loss of connection. I see despair, trauma, fear, greed, dark forces, that hand seeming powerful. I see the loss of culture and community. I see people overburdened and getting run, run down. I work in the school system. I've been a high school teacher for 11 years now. I see our youth struggling. But, at the same time, I see hope, life, beauty, and opportunity for renewal. It is our perception, belief, faith, and emotions that determine how we view any given situation. Today, I would like to talk with you about the warrior spirit, bringing out the best version of yourself, your higher self, becoming a true warrior. We are all warriors. We serve, provide, and protect. It is the spirit that gets us to stand up and work towards making a better future for future generations to come, and unleash our full potential. I have much to learn about the warrior spirit. It is in all of us. It is is the fire inside. I have been wrestling with this concept for some time now. Every obstacle, every setback, every failure, I learned something new about myself and others. Honing in the warrior spirit is a lifelong task that takes you to your last breath. It is the fire that needs to be given much attention. The hupo call themselves which can be translated as a spiritual being on a human journey. We are all spiritual beings on a human journey, two trails in one being. This journey is like a helix. The structure of our DNA. As one overcomes obstacles in life and grows, you move farther up this path. It never ends. Another set of challenges will be waiting for you. It takes clear vision and wisdom. In our ceremonies, the eagle is used for our prayer items. One of the lessons that the eagle teaches is foresight. The eagle has great vision. When I get down on myself, and I feel like I'm wading through the muck of everyday life. I think of the eagle flying high overlooking our valley and everything being peaceful and calm. From a higher plane, the, the perfect, perspective changes. How does one maintain a positive mental attitude, keep moving forward with open mind in the face of adversity? One must embrace the, that challenge. The obstacle is within us, it is a battle. We struggle with every day. We are human and make mistakes. We get tired and weak. We have negative self-talk and doubt. We get overwhelmed in these unsurmountable odds. But it, it all starts with yourself. Also remember you are not alone. We are all interconnected to all things. We have tools, practices, and friends that can help us. So when those unforeseen set of circumstances knock you to the ground, to stand up, shake it off and keep moving forward. What has helped me is to get connected with the source. Find a way to connect with the world around us, unplug. Look inward and outward. The sun, earth, water and air are all life-giving forces. It is vital that we do not continue to pollute these things. Pollution can enter into our minds, our bodies and spirit be vigilant. The warrior's path is not straight. There are moments of clarity, and there are times of uncertainty, and times it feels like you're stumbling through the dark. There are ups and downs. Once the path is clear, it takes mindful action, nerves of steel, and iron will to succeed. We are in a pivotal point in humanity. We are facing ecological, psychological, physical, and spiritual crises. There are people in power who are set on on a destructive path. Those same forces that sought to wipe us out are are now set to wipe out all of humanity. Crisis is on the horizon, some treacherous waters ahead. By awakening the warrior spirit in ourselves and each other, male or female, we will be empowered to overcome all obstacles in our way. The warrior spirit represents the highest virtues of humankind, and motivates us to take mindful action. The Warrior Spirit provides courage to sacrifice the things that hold us back from our destiny of realizing our fullest potential and achieving greatness through dedication, skill, and service. May you spread your life, your strength, and hope to keep those home fires burning. I'll
3: let you
0: know. That was Joe Marshall there. Next, we go to Ashley Hansen. Her organization, Place-Based Productions in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, uses town square theater, karaoke, bonfires, and musicals to bring communities together and address civic problems.
7: As a theater artist, I start fires through the powerful permission to play. This is something that I learned from my mother. I come from five generations of rural northern Minnesota women, Five generations of rural poverty and the systemic issues that come with rural poverty. Addiction, depression, self-doubt, denial, lack of access to resources. That's one way to tell the story of where I come from. But growing up, I never saw it that way. What I saw was five generations of resilience, resourcefulness, deep love, optimism, and generous spirits of wild playfulness. In my family, instead of Christmas presents, we have what we call traditions. Each of us invents a new game or activity we all play, and whoever wins receives a gift from whoever invented the game.
0: In the summer, my mom
7: hosts these elaborate obstacle courses on my great-grandmother's land, where we compete using old yarn and barn materials, car parts, tree branches, and acorns, battling for bragging rights. We have countless late-night game nights where we rewrite the rules to make them better, and the list goes on and on. As I look back on where I come from, it is no reason why I became a theater artist. I was raised facilitating and participating in play. And I learned the most valuable lessons of trust, bravery, creativity, teamwork, and celebrating victories, all because my family provided us with an unending permission to play. And I believe it is that play that helped shift the narrative I tell about where I come from. And that shift allowed me the power I need to be where I am today. In 2011, I started PlaySpace Productions, a theater company that works with small towns to tell their stories through original, site-specific musicals. My colleague Andrew Gaylord and I spend about a year working closely with each community, asking questions, listening deeply, and falling in love with the people and the places. Our cast of 50 to 100 local actors sing and dance their stories through the streets, parks, and prairie lands while audiences in the hundreds follow along on foot, bicycle, hay wagon, canoes, and kayaks. Our casts range from five to 95 years old. They are artists, historians, farmers, people who have never sang or danced in public in their life. And the fact I'm most proud of, we have 100% participation from mayors of each community we have worked with. And let me tell you, it is something powerful to be in a kick line musical number with your mayor.
2: <laughs>
7: as, is the true, as is true with the story I could tell about my family, many of the communities that we work with are caught in their own narrative of deficit, often to a point of paralysis. With our process of play, we disrupt the damaging tape loop by reconnecting people to each other and begin the process of what my psychologist friend, Dr. Nav Kang, refers to as community narrative therapy. Here is one such story. The town of Milan is located on the prairie in southwestern Minnesota. It is 1.2 square miles and has a total population of 356 people. Since this town was settled, it has been home to mostly a Norwegian community. Within the last 15 years, new residents from Micronesia, a collection of small islands in the Western Pacific Ocean, uh, have moved to Milan and now make up of over one half of the population. This relatively quick and drastic demographic change is a common story in many small towns in this region. And many of these small towns do not have access to the resources needed to support and welcome their new residents. But also, as is true with many communities, what we recognized early in our work with Mylan was a deep, unspoken fear of change. And that is what we wanted to address with our process.
0: As we know, the anecdote
7: to fear is love. And to find love, we need to seek to connect on common ground. So as we were researching the similarities between Norwegian and Micronesian cultures, we discovered that both cultures have folklore about sea monsters. We also discovered that in the early 1900s, there was legend of a sea monster living in La Park, which is Myron's local watering hole. In writing the play, reference to the sea monster became a symbol of fear throughout the story. And as the play comes to, to a close in a completely ridiculous 80s prom scene, the sea monster <laughs> actually appears, and the entire cast unites with cardboard swords to defeat it. But what the audience might not know, was that after months of falling in love with this community, attending parades, singing karaoke, leading tongue twisters, facilitating countless silly theater games, hosting happy hours, potlucks, bonfires, and sing-alongs? After weeks of singing and dancing through the streets with cast members of Norwegian and Micronesian descent, our acts of radical playfulness had made us a close-knit community, one in which we felt safe. It was it, we felt it was safe to host what we called a fear workshop in which our cast shared openly and vulnerably their individual and community fears. And then we talked about ways that we could overcome those fears, starting with simple and powerful commitments to knock on our neighbor's door and say hello. We wrote these fears on the teeth of the giant sea monster puppet, and then we all created our own cardboard swords as representations of our tools for overcoming fears. So that ridiculous, playful moment of an intergenerational cast of long-term and new residents coming together to defeat a sea monster with cardboard swords and an old gymnasium decorated as an 80s prom scene becomes a serious symbol for community connection, an act of civic courage that we could not have achieved as quickly or as deeply if we had not built these relationships through being playful together. Because once we have been playful with each other, we can be vulnerable with each other. We can have compassion for each other. We become friends. We fall in love with our people and our places. It is then that we can really start to address the systemic issues we are facing together. As I experienced in my upbringing, these acts of play start to shift language from disconnected or struggling rural communities to communities that dance in the streets that show up that take risks, that bravely commit to overcoming fear together. These acts of play have started small fires in the hearts of the residents that you can feel burning in the new youth center in town and in the city council's commitment to working with artists to include more Micronesian voices in the city planning processes. These acts of play are, of course, just one way to begin shifting narratives towards agency, optimism, and love. There are many ways to light a fire, as you have seen and will see on this stage today. But there is great value in working with artists in rural spaces because of our willingness to be playful in community work. This is not to make light of the serious challenges our communities are facing, but it is an invitation to find moments where play can enter and support our collective community narrative therapy practices. For this reason I started the Department of Public Transformation, which is a grassroots, growing national collective of artists working to learn from and support each other in our place-based artistic practices. I encourage each of you to reach out to this network of artists to hear how their work has changed the way their communities think, feel, and move about their places. And I guarantee you will find sprinklings of playfulness embedded in their powerful work. So as we move forward in this gathering and as we work together to light the fires that transform rural narratives across this country, I want to give you, and I hope you give each other, radical
0: permission to play. Thank you. Now we'll hear from Anita Earls, founder of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, a North Carolina-based civil rights group that partners with communities of color and economically disadvantaged communities in the South to defend and advance their political, social, and economic rights. Earls is currently a candidate for North Carolina Supreme Court justice. For 30 years, I've been a civil rights attorney. I became an attorney because I saw the
3: barriers that my family faced. I grew up in a mixed race family. My father's black, my mother's white. And when they met and fell in love in Missouri, it was illegal for them to be married. In fact, it wasn't until I was seven years old that uh, the Supreme Court invalidated those laws across the country. But what I saw was that it was possible to use the law to get us closer to that guarantee that's etched in stone over the US Supreme Court, equal justice under the law. And so I was fortunate to be able to be the first one in my family to go to college, to go to law school, and to come to North Carolina and work with Julius Chambers' law firm here. But the biggest challenge to that belief that it's possible to use the law to get closer to equal justice came 12 years ago. That happened when I was at the UNC Center for Civil Rights. I was, uh, again, working with Julius Chambers. And I got a call from my father, who at that time lived in a rural area of Washington State. And he was very distraught. Um, A neighbor had come over with a newspaper article. And the subject of the article was that a black man had been killed. And that black man was my brother. So I went home, and I worked with local authorities to try to uh, bring to justice the person who killed him. uh, She was arrested immediately afterwards, but then released. And um, over a period of months, I was ultimately unsuccessful, and I, uh, I, I was not able to get justice for my family. I was given two reasons for this. One reason I was given was that this was a rural area, and murder prosecutions are really expensive. The second reason I was given was that no jury in that county would convict a white person of killing a black man. And so that created a real crisis for me in the sense that how could I come back to North Carolina and stand in front of communities and say, yes, I'm a civil rights attorney and I can get justice for you. We can work together to get justice when I couldn't bring justice for my own family. Ultimately, what I decided was that I simply had to try harder, that the only way to honor the legacy of my brother and my family was to work harder. So I founded the Southern Coalition for Social Justice with the idea that we could bring communities together across the South with the talents of lawyers, organizers, communications, and researchers to to serve communities' visions for what they want for themselves. But there's another part of my experience that made me believe that having this kind of organization to uh, to partner with communities was valuable. And that came through a community exchange program. Um, I was working with some attorneys from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in San Francisco, uh, California Rural Legal Assistance, and we discovered that we had clients in pretty much the same circumstances. I had clients in rural North Carolina, African-American communities that were um, outside town boundaries in Southern Moore County. So this is outside Pinehurst, the golf resort, Southern Pines, um, and and, uh, other towns in that area, Aberdeen. So the black community was outside the town boundaries, it meant they didn't get water, sewer, uh, garbage, uh, all the uh, amenities, Um, and so they were essentially paying privately even though they were uh, right on the edge of the town. In Modesto, California, you had Latino communities. The town boundaries were like Swiss cheese. Um, The holes were all the Latino communities. They didn't have water, sewer, public services, sidewalks, Um, and so we decided Uh, And we didn't have any great idea of how this was going to work out, but we thought we'd bring our clients together. So we took the rural black folks from North Carolina, and they flew out to Modesto, and they walked those neighborhoods. We had uh, community strategizing sessions. How could they advance their interests in Modesto? And then a few months later, we had uh, Latino folks from Modesto fly to rural uh, Southern Moore County, They had meetings there with community members, with local elected officials, really um, talking about what it meant to to them as a community to not have these services, to not be part of the local town. And ultimately, in both areas, they were successful in their quest to get public services. It happened in different ways. In Modesto, it was through a lawsuit. In North Carolina, it was ultimately through convincing local officials. But but watching those two communities draw strength (coughs) from each other. Watching them um, learn about each other, Um, they built friendships that they kept up over time, um, and how they were able to use that to advocate for each other across that wide geographic separation was really an eye-opener. And it really made me um, convinced of the value of of having communities be able to to work together, even across um, cultural and geographic boundaries. And so that was also an impetus for founding the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. But what I see us facing right now is a true uh, threat to our democracy, uh, that we now have forces that don't believe in the importance of having every voice at the table, who don't believe that the only way to have effective public policy is to have directly impacted people engaged and involved in the decision making. And, and we have a willingness. I, it's not simply that, we, that our laws are not doing enough to protect our democratic structures. What has, this has also opened my eyes to is the fact that Um, There are important norms that we have to follow in order to protect our democracy. And we've seen um, from our elected officials at every level, not only the national level, but state and local levels, a willingness to violate those norms and a willingness to do whatever it takes um, to get to where they want to be. And that's what's threatening our democracy. So I'm happy to be here today because I know that the work that all of you do is what can protect our democracy. You are the ones who can protect us Um, and, and get us back to where we need to be. And so my message to you is never lose hope, never stop fighting, and never doubt that you can make a difference because our lives depend on it. Thank you.
0: That was attorney Anita Earls. Firestarter presentations climax with Diana Ostrich as she spoke of how her experience as an Iraq War medic informs her effort to help families in Iraq and Syria rebuild from war through the Preemptive Love Project.
2: The Iraqi desert was so dark I couldn't see my own hand in front of my face. It was Christmas Eve night when I found myself, with my medic bag strapped to my back, running towards the wounded in the Iraq War. He had been ejected from a rolled semi-truck. He was in bad shape and struggling to breathe. After getting him loaded up into the back of the Humvee, he looked up at me, and he said what I hoped no patient would ever say. I'm going to die now, tell my wife that I love her. As a medic, I knew he was right. We we're over an hour away from camp, and his lungs had collapsed from the impact of the accident he wasn't going to make it to camp alive. In a flash, I saw a picture in my mind's eye of us arriving back at camp, Christmas Eve night, him lying lifeless on the stretcher, and me with my arms just wrapped around my knees, sobbing because I had failed to keep him alive. That's when I realized, even though he wasn't an American soldier, even though in my wartime mindset, I saw him as the enemy that if he died, something in me would die, too. We are connected to each other in an undeniable way. My well-being was intertwined in his well-being. And if he died, I would never be the same. God was with me in that humvee, helping me see past my own fear of the other, past my us-versus-them perspective, so I could see that this person was my brother. And God was pleading with me to love this enemy instead of hating him. I realized I was part of something bigger. I was part of a human family that couldn't be separated by nations, by fear, or even by the flag that I wore on my uniform. In that Humvee, us versus them became a false choice. We belonged to each other. So in the middle of the Iraq War, With bombs and bullets flying, I stopped loading bullets into my gun. It sounds crazy, but I had found a new kind of freedom. A freedom to give instead of take. In that moment, I decided to fight for peace. What every soldier wants, but with sacrifice instead of bullets. I decided to see the person in front of me as fully human instead of only as my enemy. Now, today, I'm waging peace with a bunch of friends who made the same decision. We're using the power of preemptive love to unmake violence and to heal hearts across enemy lines in Iraq and Syria. We show up on the front lines of conflict, where the bombs and bullets are still flying with emergency food, water, and life-saving medical care. Violence is unmade, as ISIS survivors and refugees are empowered to reclaim their lives from war by creating businesses that give them dignity, over dependence. We go where no one else will go to love the ones that no one else will love because we refuse to let violence have the last word. And if we can do it in the most polarizing conflicts, Iraq and Syria, then I believe that we can wage peace here on our own front lines, in our rural communities who are battling for their future, over politics and who America should be. My own front line looked like coming home from war as a third-generation Army veteran believing in something unfamiliar, peace that valued my enemy as much as myself. The military was all I knew. I came from a family and a rural community that embraced one way to honor and serve my country. The week I left Iraq, We had a mini-family reunion at Balad Air Force Base, and three of my family members arrived in-country for their deployment. I knew if I told them about my experience of removing the bullets from my gun, I would be seen as other. I would lose being part of the us in my family. So I stayed quiet for 10 years about my experience in Iraq, trading my battlefield truth for belonging, and living in this tension is still costly and painful to me to this day, which is why I'm compelled to ask myself and to ask you this question again and again. What if you didn't have to choose between Democrats or Republicans, loving Christians or loving Muslims, being a soldier or a peacemaker? What if you could push back the false narrative of us versus them? Soldiers believe in peace. It's why we're we're willing to go to war. No one goes to war expecting more war. We believe peace is possible, and it's worth fighting for. Preemptive love invited me to embrace that I wasn't either a soldier or a peacemaker. I was both. This empowered me to start showing up in my community, It ignited me to move towards people who are on the other side of my political and religious trench. People I feared became friends as I started to listen to them. Because fear can't survive proximity. Presence no longer required agreement. I started to show up and care for my community in a whole new way when there is no more them, but only an us. So how do we choose civic courage? How do we build rural communities that are defined by their relentless hope? Civic courage means we no longer accept the zero-sum worldview of us versus them. We refuse to let anyone tell us which communities are worth investing in and which are disposable. By confronting the inequalities and injustices, we build sustainable communities that are worthy of our children's vibrant future. When we refuse to see someone as other, We create new stories, new possibilities between people at odds. These communities are unafraid of their differences because they are committed to working for each other's well-being. It means we don't have to choose between rural thriving or urban growth, national security or refugees, protecting black lives or blue lives. We can choose them all. I'm inviting you to wage peace in your rural communities. Live stories that will confuse your friends, make your faith community (laughs) uncomfortable, and your political party nervous. I'm inviting you to change our world one person at a time, beginning with yourself. I'm inviting you to lead as courageous people who are unafraid of standing alongside someone who you disagree with. Civic courage is striking first with love and asking questions later. It's building a bridge by trusting someone who doesn't already trust you. It's choosing to listen to someone who's across the trenches from you. I believe the only thing our communities need to thrive is all of us at the table, choosing to see the unshakable goodness in each other. I believe veterans need a wider invitation to be more than only their soldier story. I believe the future is possible. I no longer accept we cannot simultaneously be on the side of urban growth and thriving rural communities, climate care and economic growth, soldiers and peacemakers. I don't lean left or right, I lean forward, because that's where love lives. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to seven Firestarters who offered their personal stories to inspire and challenge Rural Assembly participants, and all of us, to examine our own efforts toward achieving a more just, sustainable, and inclusive nation. The Firestarter presentations were produced by Anna Clausen, a Nathan Cummings Fellow with Deep Roots in Minnesota farm country. To learn more about the Firestarters and the National Rural Assembly, visit ruralassembly.org gatherings and thedailyyonder.com. This and other Mountain Talks can be heard on our website, wmmt.org, or download the Mountain Talk podcast. This has been Mimi Pickering reporting. Thank you from all of us at WMMT for tuning in.